It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Wenigle and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Hey listeners, how are you? And a special co-host, Kira Rundle. Hey, it's good to be back. Was on last week talking about flexible solar panels, which was very exciting. So today we're going to be talking about landfill sites. So capped landfill sites are often bare open ground that can't hold a heavy building and are no good for agriculture. That sounds like a perfect location for some solar PV, you would think. Well, yes and no. While landfill sites can make good use of for solar PV, there can be a few challenges in design and execution. Hansen have grappled with these at their landfill site at Bullert, north of Melbourne. Joining us today in the studio to discuss photovoltaics and landfill sites is Daniel Fife, Divisional Landfill and Development Manager at Hansen. Hi Daniel, thanks for joining us. Hello Kay, Kira and Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So firstly Daniel, tell us about the landfill site at Bullert and what you're doing there, turning trash into treasure. And I understand the solar farm is the first in Australia. Yes, it is. Uh, the landfill opened uh, in um, 2000 and it was um, uh, takes putrescible waste or household municipal waste and has done so for the last 18 years. Uh, we were approached by our landfill gas um, contractor uh, several years ago uh, asking uh, whether we'd be prepared to support a trial for a solar array on the landfill. And I was very interested, and um, the, the project they stated said would be a trial project working with ARENA, which is the Australian Renewable Energy Authority, and uh, themselves, and they'd basically um, run a trial uh, for a 100-kilowatt uh, array on a closed part of the landfill. Okay, so that's the organisation that's already extracting the gas and converting that to electricity? Wanting yes. Wanting to put PV on there? Yes, at the moment we've got um, seven generators which basically produce uh, 7.7 megawatts of electricity uh, continuously from uh, the landfill gas that's coming off the decomposition of uh, decomposing waste. Can you tell us a bit about some of the considerations that you need to make before installing solar panels onto a capped landfill site? Well, one of the issues, firstly, is the fact that because there is so much landfill gas, it uh, can be a, a sort of a hazardous area in terms of establishing um, a solar array from conduits and cabling and, and doing the work on the site. It also I has suppose a, electricity and gas don't mix very well. Well, you've got to be careful. <laughs> and so everything's got to be put, well. uh, got to be managed, but it can be managed, and it has been. Uh, the site, uh, the 384 panels were erected in 2016 on three different types of foundation and the foundations are what um, we're looking at in terms of um, what's the best type of foundation to put on a landfill cap to preserve the integrity of the cap uh, but also to make sure that the, uh, the solar panels are stable and don't move so that they stay in alignment. 
Could you just explain these caps a bit more? Well, essentially, a landfill cap is really just uh, like a roof over the waste. Uh, once you've filled uh, the waste to, to the final profile of, of the landfill, you then have to seal it off. And generally, the seal is about half a metre of compacted um, low permeability clay overlaid by a, a geosynthetic clay, which is like a clay matting. And then on top of that is a fully welded uh, plastic liner. And then on top of that is a growing medium and drainage medium. And then generally we grass it. Mm-hmm. And the problem with grassing landfills is they become a maintenance problem or essentially a cost. So when approached by um, Dual Energy uh, to put a solar array on, it has two purposes. Firstly, it, uh, it makes use of land that can't be used for anything else but also produces a revenue stream for, um, well, for both us and for them. And when you say can't be used for anything else, um, you have massive issues with subsidence up to 10 metres, as I understand? Yes, when you, once you fill the site, the first five years, um, they can settle between uh, 10 and 15%. Um, and, you know, in landfills that are uh, 50 metres deep, you know, they can drop between five and seven metres from um, from the high point. Now, that's not necessarily a, um, it doesn't happen overnight. It mm-hmm. happens over sort of five year period, but it just precludes um, construction on on closed landfills. And of course, you can't put footings for buildings in. No, because if you pi- yeah, if you camp. pile them, uh, you, you break the the, the water barrier because yeah. we're trying yeah. to keep water out and gas in. And so, um, uh, as I said, a solar array or um, uh, solar panels on, uh, on, on a landfill cap was a, an innovative way to use land in a, that would otherwise just simply be, um, uh, be revegetated. And so what were the considerations in terms of mounting the solar panels? Well, firstly, um, in t- looking at them first is about uh, the ground pressure. The options that we looked at was um, we would ballast them and have them right at the ground or we could put concrete um, pads down and support them on a frame, um, basically uh, sitting on the concrete pad. The third option was very shallow um, ground spikes because what happens is that they become a bit of a sail. In high winds, you've got the panels themselves are, um, have got a fair surface area and so it's a matter of keeping them in position and stable um, and so that they don't blow over or, or move out of alignment but not... Uh, it's somewhat challenging when you can't really uh, put any foundation into the um, into the ground or into the landfill. Kira, that sounds like um, your solar flexible, <laughs> lightweight solar panels would be perfect. Yeah, solution. potentially. Yeah. yeah, I have a question about. So you've trialed. So okay, so this project has been in effect for approximately two years, and you've trialed these three different um, methods for installing the solar panels. Can you tell us about? Uh, your observations that you can make at this stage and what's worked and what hasn't worked, maybe? I think the, the, the ones that uh, seem to be um, in, the, in alignment better than the others are the ground-based ones, the, the ballasted ones that actually sit on the ground. And these lie flat and, on the ground? Well, es- right? yeah, essentially they're, they're slightly inclined and uh, we, have a north, we have the benefit of having a, a northward-facing slope on um, our first early cell, so that they're well set up to actually uh, align with um, with the sun. So uh, they're very effective there. If the uh, the slope was against us going the other way, I think they would have to go to the elevated ones with the concrete pads. Mm-hmm. So if you've got the opportunity to have them uh, where your slope is actually facing the sun or generally you know, the, uh, in the direction that they array, uh, align the array, uh, I'd use the ground-ballasted ones. 
Have you heard about the portable um, prefab uh, solar arrays that are, I think it's a company called 5B Make, Maverick Panels? No, so that they can, they I, have, I haven't, haven't seen those ones. I have um, noted um, in terms of flexible panels, there's a couple mm. of examples in the US. I think one's a Hillview site where they're almost draping um, flexible uh, solar array over, over a landfill cap. One of the interesting aspects of that is um, maintenance because we have to get vehicles up and around and we can drive around our solar array because we basically have formed roads. Because if you had a continuous layer of uh, solar array, you may have difficulty in terms of get of access mm. and having to drive on it. Mm. The, uh, just further on what Kay just talked about, this uh, Maverick product from 5B, the inventors of that realised that a major cost in solar arrays was the installation time with the vehicles and the roads and, and are building that framework and putting the, the formwork in for that. And they've invented foldable arrays that just pack up in a container, come along with a forklift, and they just pull them out and <laughs> stretch them out essentially and in much less than a day can install 100 kilowatts, which is absolutely magic. Yeah, so it sounds brilliant. I'd like to, <clears throat> I'd like mm, to follow yeah. that up. And it has its own ballast and stuff with it. Mm. But the beauty of your site, Daniel, is that you're already generating um, power through the gas, the methane that you're extracting, and therefore you had a connection to the grid. You had many years of the subsidence issues decreasing, so putting solar panels on doubled the amount of productivity, essentially. Uh, it was such an easy um, fit. As a consequence, the area that was uh, was used um, had already been there for, as I said, about 16 years, so it had largely settled as much as it was going to and also was immediately adjacent to the, the existing power station. One of the biggest costs for solar array or greenfield solar array is the, the grid connection. And by already having one, you just don't wear that cost. So it was just an immediate plug-in to what was an existing operation. Daniel, in reading in prep for this, I was absolutely amazed at some of the volumes you were talking about of, of gas. And we do have a technical audience. I'm sure they'd be interested in hearing how much gas you get out and actually the, the construction of what you call cells for this waste and the issues of the leachate. And so can you fill us in, just describe these cells and, and what sort of volumes of gas you're getting out? Okay. Well, a landfill cell is just really building the, uh, a, the landfill segment by segment. Um, generally, our landfill cells are 300 metres long by 100 metres wide. Um, we're operating in um, uh, a basalt quarry and we basically prepare the base to a grade so that we can drain um, the fluid, which is called leachate, uh, out of the base of the landfill and then it goes off for uh, either sewer discharge uh, or, um, or treatment. On, uh, on the base we put a metre of clay. It's overlain by a two millimetre thick um, HDPE liner which is fully welded which is overlain by a cushion gear fabric, um, about uh, 300 millimetres of gravel with uh, a drainage system through it uh, before we get anywhere waste. And this is all, say, 40 metres down? Oh, it's all at the base of the, the landfill, yeah. which can be under then filled with 40 metres of waste. Um, mm -hmm. We landfill about 440,000 tonnes a year uh, into... Um, who's who's we, your company or Australia? No, I'm sorry, this is just the Hanson site. Yep. The Willert yep. site uh, takes about 20% of Melbourne's waste. Mm -hmm. Putressible waste, that is, that's your household waste um, uh, that goes to landfill. There's about just uh, about 2 million tonnes or just mm. over 2 million tonnes of that type of waste that's going into the Melbourne landfills. 
and um, we take most of the waste from the, the northern suburb councils. Uh, and as we receive it, it's compacted in layers um, about uh, two metres in height uh, by heavy earth moving equipment because uh, our commodity is airspace and so we try to jam as much waste into the, the least amount of airspace as possible. And then as we build it up, we get to final height and then uh, then we apply this uh, the, the cap, which is, as I said, half a metre of, uh, of clay and then um, uh, several layers of gin synthetics to, to form a barrier. The biggest challenge in landfills is the water management. Um, every drop of water that the goes ingress. in... The ingress. The whether it rainfall and, uh, and oh. so on, it'll flush out the contaminants. So essentially we've got to try and minimise the amount of water that gets into a landfill and, um, and treat that water as leachate, um, uh, essentially a wastewater. Uh, and then secondly is gas. And the gas is the biggest problem for the landfill is the odour issues. Uh, whilst it's 50% methane and 50% um, carbon dioxide, essentially, that's the trace um, sulphides, which are very small in concentration uh, or in quantity, but uh, they certainly you know about it. <laughs> and uh, our challenge is to control the odour. And um, the way in which we do that is apply a, a vacuum across the, the site with a well field. So essentially, oh. you, you then once you put the waste in, it then becomes your... A well field, and you just drill into the, um, the the completed areas. Essentially, a whole lot of uh, wells. Apply a, a vacuum and suck it to a power station. Mm. So, I was going to ask with this being so compressed with with the heavy machinery, how it gets out. But you actually have to drill down uh, wells within it to to allow paths for the gas. Yes. Uh, well, it's interesting. As the waste breaks down, it, um, that's where you get the settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, the the bugs uh, basically in an anaerobic environment just chew away um, continuously, and we're basically they convert the the the, the carbon into um, uh, the methane, carbon dioxide, and and water as the byproducts. So the CO two you said fifty fifty that implies there's enough oxygen in there for half of it to actually oxidise to CO two, and the other half's anaerobic. Yeah. And um, it's basically breaking, breaking down the long-term chain carbon um, uh, organics that are in the, the waste stream. And um, the amount of gas is quite amazing. We pull out about 3.2 million cubic metres a month. Cubic, over Cubic metres. Cubic metres. Wow. Yeah, it's whistling. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the real challenges we have is when uh, the grid um, can shut the power station down as the... Uh, the electricity grid, if there's a change or a, a problem, mm-hmm. they can kick us off the grid. The moment they do that, the gas is still coming. So mm-hmm. we've got to have four very large flares to kick in immediately to uh, to burn the gas or else um, you'll smell us. And mm-hmm. our greatest issue is to, to make sure that we uh, we manage the um, uh, the gas so, so we don't create So you can't odor. store that temporarily? No. No, no. This is, it's, as I said, there's just not the facility to do that. And, um, you know, the flaring might only happen sort of um, 2 or 3% uh, of the time. It's mm-hmm. not a, a big incident, mm-hmm. but you've still got to have them in, um, in reserve. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Daniel Fife from Hanson about solar PV installations on capped landfill sites. Daniel, is this sort of installation, solar PV installation, done elsewhere around the world or in Australia? Um, my my research basically points the first um, sites were established in New Jersey in 2002 and there wasn't a lot of activity until about 2013 in the US but now it's kicked off. If you do a little Google search you can you can see the huge number of um, sites that are coming online and I, I saw one has got going to have 40,000 panels 
um, established, <laughs> and they're really commercialising the, uh, the the these closed landfills um, in the US. Not so much in Europe, and I think in Europe they're held back by uh, regulation preventing solar arrays, whereby they're concerned about the integrity of the landfill cap. And it could be a case that there's just a bit too much red tape in terms of um, preventing a, another beneficial use of the site. Talking about red tape, is there much red tape in, from councils? Oh, there's lots of red tape in, uh, in Australia. Um, mm. But uh, in this instance, for our trial, it was supported by everybody. Uh, we had um, great support from um, EPA. Uh, we informed our, our local council what we were doing and they were impressed. Um, I think uh, anything we can do for the landfill where it improves its um, uh, environmental impact, whether it be solar, phyto caps, um, we've even got rescue bees on our landfill site now. Do you think that there are other landfills around Australia that are going to be inspired by the positive outcomes of this project that you've experienced to try their own solar trials? I'm aware of a project that's underway in uh, Fremantle and Western Australia, and I'm also aware that there's a project in South Australia. I think um, uh, one of the South Australian city or Adelaide city landfills is, is uh, installing or have installed a, a solar array. But I'd be expecting it to become the norm. I think if we were to fast forward in another 5, 10 or 15 years, it'll just be part of the uh, the rehabilitation of a landfill site will be a solar cap and it'll be, it won't be so special at that time. Mm. Hanson's made um, very special efforts to go above and beyond the regulations and, and community expectations, haven't they? And you, you just mentioned in passing something called a phyto cap. That's part of the solutions. Explain a phyto cap to us and which ways you've gone above, above and beyond. The um, As landfills have emerged from the, the tips of the past, which were just simply um, you know, rubbish dumped and covered over to basically fully engineered facilities, uh, the final caps have been specified by EPA and um, uh, they're generally made of synthetic materials, as I was saying to you. A phyto cap is just a very deep um, earthen cap which is um, designed to absorb all the rainfall and water in, in winter, store it, and then um, uh, basically release it to the, the roots of plant life or um, vegetation. Uh, over the corresponding summer or drier periods. And if you build it deep enough, you won't get the infiltration problems creating leachate. We did a trial, started in 2010, of a phytocap. And um, over five years using lysimeters, which are moisture um, monitoring devices and um, having fully um, telemetry and, and uh, weather station on site, we monitored our phytocap and we monitored the growth of the plants that we put in it. And because it's so deep, you can put in um, uh, taller trees and bushes and shrubs rather than just grasses. And it produces much more of a habitat for um, local flora and fauna. In fact, we've got a large root population living in our phytocap. Mm. But what it does is it's an innovation where, one, we're trying to change um, the image of landfill. It's a ne- oh, necessary evil, but uh, if you can actually do use the land productively beyond um, landfilling, whether it be for phytocap, solar array or other purposes. You know, it's a benefit to the community. And you, don't, you must be aware that a lot of Melbourne's parks and gardens were former landfills in the, in the early days. No, was I was it? really surprised when you mentioned <laughs> that. That's amazing. Well, the reason why they haven't been built over is because they were landfills. And Which so is that, really that, lucky for us, isn't it? 
Well, it was. And I think, um, you know, one of the, the, the interesting aspects is that when you're quarrying, you quarry close to where you're doing your building. And then once the quarry's exhausted or the, the stone's exhausted, what are you going to do with it? And so in, historically it's been they've been used for landfill and then once the, the landfills are full, they've been covered in par- and, in, and turned into parkland. Mm. It's exciting. And I, I really appreciate the benefits of landfill now. <laughs> and you said actually a lot of these quarries are out the west because that's where the, the lava flows were and you basically go down through 40 metres of lava until you hit the previous soil and, and you stop there. Pretty much. Uh, one of the In the southeast, a lot of the landfills were in the sand belt. Mm-hmm. And they pose different challenges. Um, Very different, <laughs> and, as, because the the porosity and the um, uh, meant that you know, in the um, prior to lining and, and and good landfill construction, the waste was basically put into former sand pits, and um, and created a lot of problems. Melbourne's not likely to see any new landfills. We've got enough landfill um, capacity for the next you know thirty to seventy years. What we will see is. Greater composting, waste even, to energy. Even with that, two million tonnes a year. Yeah, even with that, there's there's plenty of airspace. <laughs> Getting back to what you were talking about earlier with the the flares, when the you can't um, export your power to the grid. Um, most of the landfill sites in Australia, I believe, do have power generated by methane gas. Uh, most of the big city ones do. Um, as you get into regional Victoria, you may not have the the volume of, of gas coming from smaller landfills and also the cost of grid connection. Um, so if they don't have power station, they'll have flares um, just simply so that um, you're converting the methane to carbon dioxide because methane has um, what a 25 uh, times um, factor mm. in terms of its effect on the greenhouse. In a lifetime, but in the short term, a 20-year horizon is actually 87 80. times, um, which is the part that that's the time scale we're really concerned about because we'll hit the tipping points. Right. So uh, in terms of flaring, flaring is um, is sort of the the base standard now for, for all landfills mm. and where it be, is economic to, to put in a, a modular power station. Because ours is modular. We've actually added an engine about uh, 18 months ago. It was six and now it's seven. I think we'll get to um, possibly as high as up to 12 to 16 um, uh, units of um, uh, or generators on site. So how big are they? Oh, they all produce 1.1 megawatts. And so you just keep adding them as the more gas comes on. And what happens is landfills produce gas, or the, the cell one, the first cell that we're in, will produce gas for 15 to 20 years. So what's happening is we're still adding a cell every year, essentially. So we're, we haven't reached uh, the, the period where um, of peak gas production yet. So mm-hmm. we're still going to be seeing more and more <laughs> gas being produced and uh, we'll get to a point where we'll, um, as I said, it could be as high as 16 units um, generating power and pumping it into the grid. That's a lot of busy bacteria under there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how much... Energy have you been able to produce using this method over the course of the lifetime? Um, I think we've got we've produced five hundred and eleven million megawatt hours uh, over the eighteen years with the the landfill gas. Five hundred million megawatt hours. 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 It's huge. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's a uh, and you know the essentially it's it's a business as well. But what it's doing is that it's basically offsetting um, you know electricity from from fossil fuels. Um, you know, landfills can 
uh, well, up until the solar array started, landfills were the, the single biggest source of green energy in the country uh, from these um, uh, gas-fired power stations. And, and speaking of that, I hadn't picked this up in the research, but you mentioned just before coming on air some issues to do with counting landfill emissions and the IPCC having ignored those, and you, and you actually brought some of that in? What happened when um, the, the clean energy uh, bill was introduced around 2007 or 2008, um, Australia was the first country worldwide to include uh, waste within the scheme for, uh, for carbon, to put a price on carbon. And, and why hadn't it been included up till then? It was too, too hard to measure because mm-hmm. one of the problems was that, you know, the, there wasn't the, the ways to, uh, to calculate the emissions. You could estimate them, but uh, not accurately. And whilst we were still reporting under ENGES, uh, there was no cost impact. So we were just basically using the methodology and, and putting the numbers in. Um, as soon as there was a cost, uh, we got involved and we assisted the, the federal government to... Um, to develop uh, and refine the uh, the method for uh, for determining emissions from landfill. So, what other projects is Hanson involved in along these lines? Well, in terms of our latest um, uh, development on the site, we have we were uh, sending our leachate offsite via um, liquid waste contractor, and mm-hmm. they were tankering it to a treatment plant. We've just built a three kilometre pipeline to the nearest sewer outlet, um, and we've built a wastewater treatment plant on site to treat about 12 megalitres of leachate uh, a year. Is there anything valuable coming out of that or is it just a straight cost to neutralise it? Or Well, it's a straight cost to neutralise it. One of the... Um, you've got a, the single biggest issue is if you manage your leachate and you manage your gas, um, you'll basically remain environmentally compliant and that's really the biggest part of our operation and to maintain our social licence to operate. And this leachate is just the moisture from within the garbage that's... It's yeah, filtering but, down to as the I said, 12 million litres a year we, we, we've got to treat. Um, it's it, it's a rainfall that falls on the landfill while it's operating. Okay. We'll go through and yeah. it'll flow through and flush out contaminants. It's also the liquid that uh, from the decomposing waste. I mean, if you've ever looked in your rubbish bin, if mm-hmm. you've been away for a month, mm. um, you know, it's basically the, the liquid that uh, that comes from the waste stream. You touched on before about the changes in landfill um, consistency is is that an issue for you? Yeah, over time, um, uh, as a society, we've uh, what we've sent to landfill has changed. In um, we've sent a lot more organic waste, food waste. Um, you know, twenty twenty five years ago, there wasn't as much food waste going into landfill as we've um, we're eating out more, or and we've become a bit more of a disposable society. Um, the uh, the level of organics going to landfill has increased, and as a consequence, it poses problems with gas and leachate. Daniel, I think we've just run out of time. If people are interested in finding out more, where would they go to? They can look at um, our uh, landfill uh, website, which is uh, au. In relation to the solar array, uh, there's quite a f- uh, few good articles or information on the ARENA website. And uh, if you Google um, um, solar... Uh, Landfill caps, you'll find some great information in relation to both flexible and um, and regular solar arrays. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Thank it's you very really much. It's really interesting. Thank you. We've been speaking to Daniel Fife from Hanson. 
The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the BZE website and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can help keep us on air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.